Yes, ma'am. What's going on, everybody? It is September 7th, 2020, and you are listening to episode 11 of the Candid Clarinetist Podcast. enjoying their nice long Labor Day weekend. My name is Sam Rothstein, acting principal clarinet with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of the Candid Clarinetist podcast. I am joined today by Jacob Joyce, who is the associate conductor of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra. How's it going, Jacob? It's going well. I uh, I love the theme song. You sound fantastic. Thank you so great, much. Uh, great lead in there. Yep, appreciate it. Yep, it was uh, it was a nice project for me and a friend of mine. So it was uh, it was fun to do that. I it was my first time doing the like recording with the click track thing, and so figure what better way to do it than to brand my podcast. So there you go. Yeah. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the role of the modern day conductor and music director. I know for myself and others who are unfamiliar with music, it can be a little bit enigmatic. Uh, just nobody really knows kind of what you know how the sausage is made. So. I think it'll be interesting to get your perspective on that and uh, just sort of talk through what, what your views are. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about it. I, I think your, your sentiment is shared by many. Most people see the conductor, they see someone who waves their arms, arms around. Uh, maybe I was watching this thing the other day, uh, this show on Amazon Prime about uh, this soccer team, and the guy was saying, oh, our coach is like the... Uh, conductor of an orchestra he like tunes the instruments and he every, so I think everyone has this picture of what the conductor is but uh, it's also yeah it's enigmatic it's confusing looks like someone just flapping around up there so excited to talk about it yeah definitely so before we dive right in I'm gonna ask you your favorite icebreaker classical music icebreaker and I, th- I think it's your favorite because this came from you I learned this one from you which is uh, if we were to have all the scores in the world on a boat and you had to get rid of someone's scores, whose scores would you toss off the boat never to be seen or heard from ever again? Yeah, this is my favorite icebreaker. Um, I have a hot take on this one. Part of the reason I like playing this game where you have to throw off, you have to make an actual decision and throw off like A-list composers. So you can't just say like, oh yeah, I would get rid of uh, Dittersdorf or some some composer no one's ever heard of. So my composer hot take that I would throw off is uh, Peter Illich Tchaikovsky. That's See a ya. that's a fairly controversial opinion, yeah. I would say. I, I I'm just I'm just not that big of a fan, and I think I think most people would include him in their top ten composers, and. I don't need those scores around. So, <laughs> so would you ever program anything with Tchaikovsky, or is it just, you know, if we're talking what's important moving forward for music history, that's one that you would be done with? I, I mean, I think um, our director of artistic planning, Katie McGinnis, she's actually said to me before she knows anything by Tchaikovsky, I probably won't really want. Um, Anything by Schumann, I absolutely will want. So those are, I think she has at multiple times said, oh, there's this Schumann thing coming up, but maybe let's save it so you can do it. And, oh, we, we're going to do this Tchaikovsky. You're not going to do this because I know you, you would say no anyway. So right. I would never say no to anything, but if I had my choice, Tchaikovsky off the boat. Yeah. So does it so you said it has to be a list composer what would you consider like like because my answer to this is always bruckner yeah would you consider bruckner an a list composer i think that's on, that's on the board a lot i mean you know if if we're going for really hot takes we had a couple kids in the side by side orchestra so they would throw beethoven off which i can't get behind but that is definitely <laughs> an a list composer that one but i think, I think is unequivocally an a list composer 
I think Bruckner's up there. It's it's uh like all things considered, I w- I also would probably throw Bruckner off before Tchaikovsky. But I'm I'm thinking about like their place in the hierarchy and how how overrated I think they are. And so Tchaikovsky, see ya. Sure. Well, cool, man. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a. I always like that question because because you're right. It, it forces people to make a decision that that maybe is potentially unpopular, but it sort of exposes people and then. You know, I feel like I know more about you knowing the answer to that question. Or it's like, that it's question. like the ha- a house in, in Harry Potter. You kind of, you, there are certain people who, certain people's favorite composer is Tchaikovsky. And, you know, it just says something about your character. For sure, for sure. Especially people whose favorite composer is Tchaikovsky. There's something slightly off with, with their character, <laughs> I'd say. I gotcha. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so great. I think that let's just dive right in here on conductors. So what do you think about, I think one of the biggest decisions for conductors is like programming a concert. How do you compile a concert? So what are the things you're thinking about as a conductor when you're programming a concert? So there's a few things that I think one of the, I mean, if we're talking about like, I think the hardest concerts to program are the ones where you have the most flexibility. So if that's like a subscription concert, there are very few restrictions in a certain way. And so it's like cooking or something. If uh, I had this dilemma tonight, I, you know, I, I made dinner tonight. And if you just have four ingredients, you can type into Google uh, pasta with green beans, tomatoes and whatever. And you can make that. There's going to be one recipe easy. But when you've got like a full fridge and you have to decide what am I going to make? It's actually way harder in some ways. So a lot of the concerts I program, if they're kids concerts, if they're family concerts, they have a huge number of programming restrictions. So we need pieces between six minutes and eight minutes or three minutes and five minutes. It's got, but for a subscription concert, one way you have a lot of flexibility. I, I honestly, one of the biggest things that forms my sense of how to build a program is just my own experience going to concerts. You know, I uh, I lived for two years in Boston and went to the Boston Symphony every week. I obviously go to ISO every week. For me, like someone who goes to an orchestra concert pretty much 52 weeks of the year outside of COVID, um, it's still an experience every time I go to the hall and I've still committed to sitting down for an hour and a half, two hours and listening to a concert. And so you kind of want like a full plate or a, uh, a well-constructed program that feels like an event. And so in that vein, I generally shy away from, Oh, let's just do four Mozart symphonies on one concert. I think there's a crowd for which that appeals, but more people want kind of a little taste of different things and they want something substantial and something. And I, one of the main concepts that I try to think about in programming is the idea of um, density of musical ideas. When I think about a piece, I try to think about how how dense is this for the listener, you know, is this something that has an enormous number of musical ideas that the, the listener has to process and interpret in a very short period of time? A piece like a piece by Schoenberg might have tons of musical ideas in one measure. And then there's other pieces that are much lighter. A Bruckner Symphony, for example, a Bruckner Symphony could have one musical idea for 25 seconds. For too long. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, and it unfolds at this like tectonic pace and the listener's experience of how, how substantial something is, I think is very correlated to that. So I try to think about that. If you, if I'm going to program a piece by Schoenberg, that's 15 minutes, but it's incredibly dense, that's going to be taxing on the listener. They're going to have to really focus. Maybe I'll surround that by, something by Mozart that unfolds a a slower piece by Mozart that unfolds. It's a little more easy, maybe a Baroque piece. Um, And I like to think about it in that way because then you don't, then you're not saying, okay, let me have one contemporary piece, one romantic piece, one Baroque piece. Those could all be really 
hard pieces to listen to, really easy pieces to listen to. There are contemporary pieces that are not very dense in terms of ideas. There are pieces that are incredibly dense. And I think that's a, for me, that's a little more um, comprehensive way of looking at something. And it's like constructing a meal, you know? It's not so much, let me give you some vegetable dish and some meat dish and some whatever dish. It's usually a meal will go from light to heavy You'll have one substantial course. If you eat all heavy food, it's going to be too overwhelming. If you eat all light food, you're going to walk away wanting something more. And so that's that's what I try to think about. And then from there, it kind of clarifies itself. You just you put things together that that are going to make a nice and full program. Yeah, and you made an interesting point. I think honestly, the cheapest way of programming, and this is just this is of course an opinion, but for me, the cheapest way of programming is like a Debussy concert or a Rachmaninoff concert or a Mozart concert. Cause it's like, okay, there's your theme. We understand that there's a theme, but yeah, I think you're right. It just doesn't have any balance to it. You know, like, yeah. like if Debussy is beautiful and I love Debussy, but you know, if you, if you put prelude to the afternoon of a fawn on the first half of a concert, like that's, that piece is like perfectly balanced in every way. And so if you have, but if you have too much of it though, it's just like, it's like eating too much of like a really good rich dessert. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what and, are your I just, on that? I, and, and I, I just think about like, you think about the average concert goer, I go 52 weeks a year and every concert feels like an event for someone who goes four times a year. If we have someone who comes to the ISO four times a year, they're like a pretty loyal subscriber. They come to four concerts a year. And if you go to four concerts a year, you might hear one piece by Beethoven for the year. You might hear every other year a piece by Brahms. You might, and so, you know, I understand themed concerts and I, I kind of understand concerts where you play one composer or something like that, but it is like, okay, if they've come to four concerts a year and we spent this entire concert on Debussy, what are we foregoing for these people when they, you know, and if they're not a particularly experienced listener, is that what they really wanted was like a deep exploration of, of the music of Debussy or did they want kind of a, uh, they have a night out and they're going to dinner and then they're going to see a classical concert and they want, you know, a full product or like a full meal. And that's why I think, you know, you see, we're kind of in a way like, when you program, you're like a curator of an art museum. And there's there might be a place at some point for uh, an exhibit on some lesser known artist that goes really deep into the works of one person's paintings or sculpture or whatever. But the benefit that an art museum has is most art museums also have their full collection where you can see everything. And for someone like myself, who goes to an art museum three or four times a year, I like seeing the full collection. and I, and I if I was more well-versed, I would also want the, the exhibits, but I think we have a tough thing in programming and that we have to give people both of those things. And so, yeah, I try to think of them as, as constructing a full, full product every time. And then along the same lines, what is like your dream program, unlimited budget, anything you want? Um, I, this, I, I feel like this is a tough one cause I have like 25 dream programs, but uh Tchaikovsky all six Tchaikovsky's all, all Tchaikovsky no <laughs> needless to say I don't think I don't think Tchaik would make the cut I mean I think honestly um it's kind of a cop-out answer but Mal I would love to just conduct Mahler too with the choir um and that's a program in and of itself but maybe like if outside of Mahler too Alpine if I have unlimited forces budget let's say alpine symphony on the second half because i love that i love that piece um i'd have to have some schumann on my program so i think i would put manfred overture to schumann on my program and then let's say uh copeland clarinet concerto with sam rothstein oh man my man that's on your dream that's program? My, uh, no way program. all right bud well that's that's great and I think we have the same taste in music because, uh, you know, Mahler 2 and Alpine Symphony 2 are my favorites for sure. Um, so when I first met you, you were 
actually a violinist. And I, I said were, so are you still a violinist? Is that, should I not use the past tense there? Well, as of recently, I can't say I've been practicing a lot, but during COVID, you know, we all have a little more time on our, time on our hands, taken out the violin again, dusted it off, played a little a little Bach. Um, so maybe I can still claim that I, I am a violinist, but were is, were is fine. Okay. Yeah. So Jacob and I were Tanglewood Fellows in 2012 together, and uh, that's when we first met. And about, what was it, I guess, six years later, I was on the committee for the associate conductor with the ISO, and I got this video, and and, and we knew each other, and, and I recognized his name, and I was like, Jay, I've heard this name before, where is this? And Because we weren't like good friends at Tanglewood, we, we were acquaintances, I would say, and uh you know, so I'm watching this video. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I know this. I thought he was a violinist. And it was like really good. Like I was blown away by his tape. Like it was really great. And so I just for my own curiosity, if nothing else, when did you decide you wanted to be a conductor? Well, you know, probably actually um, when I was at Tanglewood, I already had it in my mind because I think uh, I, I decided, I don't know that I decided definitively that I was going to do this in, in high school, but it was something I was thinking about in high school and definitely in college. Uh, it was trending that way. Um, I, I, I think it partly started to be completely honest because I was just not totally cut out for the, uh, the level of, routine and kind of what seemed to me to be rote uh, repetition that was required of playing an instrument. I, I did that for 20 years and I practiced my scales and things like that. But I already in high school, I think I was a little tired of uh, looking at one line of, of music and knowing that I was going to be playing one line of music um, as a violinist and I liked thinking about, I always liked music theory, I always liked music history, but I, I liked kind of thinking about um, how much more complicated things get when you add multiple lines of music. And uh, I always liked chamber music, but more than anything else, I like playing in orchestra. And in fact, I was back, Was were you were we at Tanglewood this summer when we played Petrushka? Yes. Yeah, because that video is, there's a video of Petrushka online. I was... Uh, needing a recording of Petrushka for something. And so I went on YouTube, looked and found it. And I was watching a little bit of the recording and I noticed what this is what I did when I played an orchestra and it was a terrible habit. I like just looked around the whole time and would watch like other people in the orchestra. And when a melody is about to come in, I would kind of turn and like start watching people. And it's incredibly distracting and it's like terrible orchestral etiquette. So it's good that I... I gave up violin anyways, because I would have been a terrible colleague to play an orchestra with. But that's where my mind was from from an early age was like, you know, who's playing here? Who's coming in? Uh, and I just I wanted like a sense of the whole. In, and I always loved orchestral music the most. So that's I think I had my mind on it from from high school, maybe. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I remember that performance specifically. Uh, that was a really awesome performance. And it was well, really here's the thing. I'm curious. I wanted to, so I don't mean to denigrate our, our performance at Tanglewood at all, but this is, it's just an interesting thing about memory. I, I remember playing that concert and thinking like, this is one of the most transformative experiences in my life. And like, we were just on it and killing it. And maybe this is my like warped mind as a conductor now, but I listened to the recording back and it was like, eh, okay, that was a little bit of an issue there. Oh wait, like that was not quite to get eh. And, you know, not to, um, and this is maybe, maybe I've just like broken the circuitry in my brain though. But I, uh, I remember it from, from our Tango days as being like one of the best concerts I ever played in. I agree with you. And it was, I think when we were there, it was transformative in that regard. For me, it was, I remember being on stage and just, you know, getting that performer's high during that concert and it like never went away and it kept like, yeah. growing. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's like. I mean, this goes to, into our profession, though. Like, when you listen back to the recording, you're going to find something you don't like every single time. And it, it wasn't the cleanest recording by any sense of the word, but that didn't take away from the power of it, in my opinion. Oh, of course. And I try to think about that when, like, whenever we do something, like, side-by-side side or you work with kids or something like that. I mean, 
something that seems routine to you or that seems uh, that the product doesn't seem incredible to a kid or to someone learning or that could be a transformative experience. And so, yeah, I think it's th those are good memories to have if, if for no other reason than, you know, it was a super fun performance. But I think as many kids who can have a similar experience, all the better. Definitely, definitely, for sure. Or even, I mean, you mentioned the people in the orchestra, but also the people in the audience. I mean, there's a yeah. number of performances that come to my mind uh, from when I was in Chicago or uh, when I was in school, just like recitals that I listened to that I'll never forget just based on like how they happened. And then you probably talk to the person who gave the recital or the performance like, oh, whatever, you know, it wasn't very good and yada yada. So it's just, it's a matter of perspective in the time. And I think that's what's so interesting about music in general is that it happens in that moment. And yes, yeah. there are ways of documenting it, but really the most powerful thing is when it's actually happening, which is why yeah. live music is so good. And I like to think, I've, I, I think I've seen a, a strong connection between when the performers on stage feel like they were into it and had fun and were engaged, the audience feels the same way. I mean, you see that with someone like Yo-Yo Ma all the time. You can, you can tell he exudes this enjoyment and it just is contagious. Definitely, for sure. So what do you think, this is a heavy question, but what do you think the primary role of a conductor is on the stage? Like let's start. Let's 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 make it a little easier. What is the best quality for a conductor to have? The most important quality on the stage. On the stage, like in a concert. Let's do rehearsal and concert. Yeah, because so they're concert, probably different. I would guess they're they're very different. For me, I'd say most important quality in a concert is. Um, is being being an inspiration with your body language and giving the extra motivation to the players to give it their all, play with emotion, passion. And also in the same vein, I mean, this is two things really, but, but making people, giving people a space where they're comfortable to play. And it's kind of, they go hand in hand because I think in the concert when all the work is done and you've, you've done your job and really the concerts, the, the conductor's job in the concert is to take a back seat and let people play and kind of, but you can serve to really motivate people that extra little bit to, to, to really bring the energy because it's a concert. And you can also give people a space to feel comfortable when they're playing because it's a concert and people might be nervous or something like that. So, you know, it's little things like if you cue someone and you point directly at them versus you like invite them to play, if it's a nervy entrance or something like that, you don't want to be, you don't want to be uh, disturbing people or making them not creating a, a, a space where they can really play to their fullest. And so I think in, in concert, that's, that's the most important thing. Extra energy, extra inspiration, but also, you know, taking a back seat and letting people play. Rehearsal, rehearsal is very different. I'd say for rehearsal, there's too many important, I mean, it's hard to decide one best quality, but actually for me, I think the most important quality for any conductor bar none is authenticity and I'll give two, authenticity and knowledge or preparedness. You have to know exactly what you want and you have to be authentic in what you want and how you get it. But if you take those as like givens, the person's up there and they're prepared and that they're themselves, they're not acting. Then for me, rehearsal, especially in the professional setting is about kind of efficiency or economy of time usage, of motion, of your ability to kind of triage, to rank things in terms of what needs to be dealt with and what will fix itself. I actually think that's the most important skill, far more important than your technique, your baton technique, your uh, demeanor. I mean, your demeanor is important, your ear, all that stuff is important, but your ability to uh, be efficient with your time, say as little as you need to say in an effective way, but also to take all of this information and 
basically triage it and decide, okay, what needs to be dealt with? What is not so important and might take care of itself? What should I run again? What should I stop to rehearse? I think that actually is the, that's the separator between the great ones and the mediocre ones. That's important, or excuse me, that's interesting that you bring that up because I feel like there's some conductors that talk way too much and say way too little, and then there's others that say way too little and you don't get enough out of them. So there's like an interesting medium that you need where like you need to say just enough that you get what you want and you don't have to like go back and do it again. So it's just like you're not trying to decipher some code that they're giving you. But then there's other conductors that just like talk and talk and talk. And as my orchestra conductor in college said, they only remember the sound of your voice, which I think is very true. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, I, I think that's totally true. And I think it's you have to like any I think it's kind of true of any leadership position. You have to think about whatever you say as something that people listen to and can either serve to motivate people or something that people hear and they realize it's not particularly pertinent to them. And so they start, they start thinking, why did that person say that? Maybe subconsciously. And you kind of build up this, uh, capital with your word usage and what you choose to say, where people start to know you as someone who says things that are important and that matter and that are really vital or someone who uses words effusively and just keeps talking. And if you do that, then when you actually say something important, it carries so much less weight. And the same thing goes actually for conducting. I mean, you can, the, the technique, you can flail around and make tons of gestures, but if your gestures are meaningless, people start tuning out your meaningful gestures as well. And so the art of the physical element of conducting, for me at least, is to use exactly the, the gestures that you need, no more, no less, um, so that people know that when they look up, they're getting information from you that's that's necessary. Absolutely, I, I agree 100%, and you put it very eloquently there, so thank you for that. Um, I mean, it's easier said than done, let me say. I, like, <laughs> but it's not, I'm not trying to say that I do that all the time, but that's, that's what you work towards, at least. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so, you know, we talked about the most important qualities on the stage, so this is really important now, especially nowadays, what about off the stage? The role of a music director or a conductor? What is their most important quality when they're not conducting? Yeah, I mean, it's... You know, I actually think that, in a way, the, the responsibilities are different, but in a way, it comes down to the same thing that matters on stage, which is kind of... Definitiveness of leadership um, and clarity of vision, but more importantly, an ability to communicate that vision to people in a empathetic, in a positive, in a supportive way. And you you have to, I think, off the stage, conductors have to know that they're still. Um, they're still musical leaders of an organization in a way. And they're, they're, um, my, my greatest role models in the world of conducting, I think kind of live and breathe 24 seven, their, their essence as a conductor. And so it doesn't turn off when they go off the stage, they still have the same clarity of ideas. They still have the same preparedness, with anything they do, whether it's a meeting or a donor event, or they come with the same level of enthusiasm and dedication as they do to the music. And I think those serve each other because you're a better onstage conductor if you you live those like ideals that you're aiming for onstage, offstage, and vice versa. And it goes, it goes for any leader, I think. If you see your, the leader of your organization um, out and about off the job, but doing something that's totally 
uh, antithetical to the image that they've created of themselves. You're going to have this kind of, you're going to be like, who, who is this guy? I thought, you know, th this person was a, a, a good leader, but he or she is not uh, bringing the same, same quality to their, their life as they are to their work. And so I think that's actually the key. And then from that, there's all this stuff that you have to do. I think you have to be an ambassador for classical music. I think it's, it's more important now. We always say this, but it's more important now than ever that conductors and musicians are ambassadors for classical music and realize that the audience is something that we constantly have to work to, to build. And that is vital. But I, my impression is that the conductors who are most dedicated on stage will do that off stage too and vice versa. Yeah. And I'm not going to spend most of the podcast like trashing conductors. Cause I, I think that oftentimes they're very polar. It's a very polarizing position. And I think that, I, I can always tell who the best conductors and best music directors are because it's not about how many people say good things about them. It's about if anyone says anything bad about them, which is uh -huh. really interesting <laughs> because yeah. like if you hear like, I think the perfect example is Andres Nelson's. I have never heard anybody say a bad word about him. Yeah. Perhaps your experience is different, but like, you know, he just knows what to say, when to say it, and he's really well respected as a person. Yeah. And I think that like those things combined are what a really truly great music director and conductor, those qualities is what you need. Yeah. And I mean it's it's pretty simple stuff. In the case of Nelson's and so many other great conductors, I mean, he's he's got he's got incredible natural technique and he He's unbelievable to play under. Uh, I when we played with him at Tango, it was just like, but he's just a really nice guy, and like that's part of the reason why no one says anything bad about him. Is like, it's pretty simple stuff. You're really nice. You're empathetic. People have issues, and you you deal with them uh, in an effective and appropriate and positive way. Then, who is going to say anything bad about you? I think the problem is that the conducting profession just. Uh, you know, it attracts it, it attracts a type of person a lot of the time that those things are a challenge for. So yeah, like I remember, a, 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 I was watching an interview with Michael Wayne, who we had in the podcast a couple weeks ago, um, and he said when Andre, member of the Boston Symphony, and he said when Andres Nelsons would like tune chords instead of like pointing at people and saying it's sharp, it's flat, he would just say uh, woodwinds. I think we can be a little more optimistic you know, yeah. trying to tune this. And, and like just saying it that way makes every single person who's involved want to do it better. They're not threatened. Yeah. They're not intimidated. And like simple things like that make a huge difference, I think, in a conductor yeah. or music director. Yeah, hugely important. And that's why I think kind of every word you choose, every word you say, you have to try to think about that kind of thing. Is like, do I say first clarinet, you're flat? Or do, you, do I say, let's try it again? Or do I say, uh, listen to each other? Or do I say, let's be a little more optimistic? You know, there's so many different things that you can say, and each one of those has a slightly different effect. And you have to kind of decide when to push, when to not push, when you need positive reinforcement, if you ever need negative reinforcement. Um, and yeah, those are all the questions that you have to kind of weigh in your mind as you're rehearsing. For sure. Really, really interesting stuff. So you are an associate conductor. That's your current title. So can you talk about what your responsibilities are as an associate conductor? Yeah, uh, an associate conductor, it's a little different role than someone like a music director. Um, you actually have to, in a way, I mean, I don't mean to say that my job is harder than a music director is necessarily, but you have to wear way more hats and you have to wear hats that you are not actually trained for in standard conducting education. And so uh, you have to conduct kids concerts and you know, you've, you've been there when I uh, narrate these kids concerts from uh, for, for discovery and you have to find a demeanor and deliver a script to a bunch of second graders. And then 
You have to do a family concert where there are grandparents and three-year-olds in the audience. Then you also cover the classical concerts, so you have to be ready to step in at any moment, which in a way is, uh, it's, I'm not going to say it's harder than conducting the week, but, but you have to actually, one of the hardest things for me is if you're covering a piece that you know and the conductor on stage is doing it very differently, I mean, it happens a lot that conductors are actually beating, you know, it, there's a passage that you can beat in one or in three, and I've done it my entire life in one, and they're doing it in three. And I need to know for that week that I have to beat this in three if I actually get called up to do this, because that's what the orchestra has seen this week. That's what they're expecting. And so you have to be prepared to conduct a version of a piece that's really not yours. So that's tricky. And... And then occasionally you get to do big concerts of your own and there you put on the music director hat of sorts and actually really rehearse. And um, it's just a lot of different stuff um, and, and a lot of hats that you have to, to try to wear at the same time. In my case, probably ineffectively, but you know, I do it the best, best I can. Oh, you do a great job. And speaking of, <laughs> you had the fortune to fill in for an ISO subscription concert. and I believe it was your first season. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah so true. what happened was Bramwell Tovey, he had a, a family issue and it was a Sunday night, I believe. And the first rehearsal was on Tuesday and it was a concert. It was all uh, Spanish music, very unusual program. Um, or it wasn't all Spanish because there was Ravel on there, but it was inspired by Spanish music. And, uh, you know, it's a Sunday night and our director of artistic planning, Katie McGinnis, you know, she did the usual, like, let me call 20 people and see what she can come up with. And, you know, she's like, I got Jacob ready to go. We were in, I was the chair of the artistic advisory committee at the time. So we were going back and forth about it. And then she was like, Jacob's ready to go. I, no one's available. We're going to, we're going to do it. And I'm like, you know, yes, please. Like he's here, you know? And so can you just talk about what that whole week was like? Yeah, uh, it was crazy. I mean, thankfully, um, and I'd like to think, I mean, it doesn't always go this way every week, but I try to the best of my ability, one of the thankless things that you do as an associate, but that you need to do in an event like this is like be prepared weeks ahead. And so if you get a call with 24 hours notice or whatever it might be that you can actually be ready. Um, so I, I could have been way less prepared. I had already looked at all this stuff. It turned out that um, uh, it was my first time ever doing Rhapsody Espanol, this big piece by Rebel. And so that was like a little intimidating because that's a piece that is tricky um, and you like in those situations to have done it before, ideally. And there was also this Tarina piece on the concert that I had never seen before. So I had had to learn that. But um, needless to say, I, I crammed for, for 24 hours despite having prepared beforehand. But it was... Uh, it was a crazy, crazy week because I also happened that week to have like a lot of my own stuff. Like we had a double discovery and we had side by side and I think there was something. So it ended up being like, I had like 10 hours of rehearsing one day or something. Um, and I rehearsing is like, rehearsing for two hours to me is like putting in eight hours of normal work in a day because you, you like you can't break focus for a minute and it's very mentally taxing because you're doing this kind of like triage thing all the time you're listening you're um so it was a frantic week and the problem with something like that is that it's not a problem but the the challenge is that first rehearsal you have to be that's where you have to be most on it's not like something that you can warm up and by the dress rehearsal, you're like saying the stuff that you really need to say. You need to get in in the first rehearsal and really start working because that's when stuff is still the newest and the rawest. And, and so you have to be ready before that, really. And so uh, it was a challenge, but I crammed for 24 hours and it was it was super fun. I mean, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, that was a really cool week. I remember that there was also this kind of like buzz because everyone's like, oh, like the young conductor. Because, you know, I mean, we're Indianapolis is a very wholesome city where they're like, oh, you know, the hometown hero, you know. 
And so, like, I remember there was, like, a certain buzz and there was a nice crowd for both the evening concerts. I remember it was a really nice crowd. And so, it was it was really cool to, like, see you in that environment. And your parents were able to come, which was really cool. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was really, a, yeah, it was a, it was a fun weekend. And, and I know, I mean, a lot of people in the orchestra, like, really respect you. I mean, we respect you, but at that point, you know, you were still pretty new. And I yeah. think you, you, you gained a lot of supporters that week, um, deservedly so, because that was, that was not an easy program to just jump in on, you know, right away. Yeah. I benefited from, uh, it was a violin concerto that week that I happened to have played in my previous, uh, life as a violinist. And so that was also very helpful in that, like, it's always easier to accompany when you've, when you've actually played the piece. Um, so you know, I was lucky in that way, but yeah, it was super fun. And yeah, definitely. Cool, man. So we already talked about this. So let's talk about score study and preparation. Like this is such a interesting topic. Cause I feel like everyone does it a little differently. It's like some people are like, you know, a beautiful mind where it's like they can, you know, you look at their score and you wouldn't even recognize the notes on the page. Cause it's so marked up. And some people are like, okay, I just kind of look through it and mark a few things here and there. And, uh, you know, then here we go. So where do you fall in that category? Like, are you a, a marker? You mark all your chord progressions and do all that stuff? Or are you, you know, just let's look at it, let's analyze it, let's internalize it, and then let's do it? Yeah, in terms of marking my scores and just generally the, the approach to score study, I really try to separate um, my own kind of theoretical, historical curiosity about a piece from what the job is as a conductor. And I think like one mistake that some conductors make is conflating those two things and thinking that because you love a piece so much that, and you have all these ideas about that piece, that as a conductor, it's your responsibility to give all of those ideas to the orchestra and you know they're very different jobs actually and i think anyone can go any music lover can go and buy a score and analyze it and so i often get two scores and i have my own curiosity score that i can mark up as much or as little as i want and often i'll do that and you know here's an idea scratch it out i like this idea better put in the chord progressions all that kind of stuff but then i have my conducting score and I try to mark that with a system that's as economical as possible and as uh, directed as possible to my job as the conductor. Because one thing that one thing when you get up on the podium, what you don't want, at least in my experience, is a lot of stuff is happening and you, you want to slow the process down for yourself and be able to focus on what you need to focus on. And so if you've got some Jackson Pollock like painting on your score and it's just like this disaster you're going to spend a lot of your mental energy thinking like okay what did i actually mark there and what uh what was my idea and that was my experience for a long time conducting i've written all this stuff to myself in pencil and like oh maybe it should be like this or or maybe it could be like this but when you're conducting you have to have an idea you have to communicate it boom and so when i mark the scores i have you know, cues that I need to give. I have dynamics that I need to show. I have phrasings that I need to know. I have maybe some character markings that I need to know. It's, it's color coded in a way that's very visually friendly, but it's distilled to only the stuff that I need to know, no more, no less, so that I know when I look down, that's something that I need to know. And, and, for me, stuff like, it's just a personal personal thing, but for me, stuff like harmonic analysis, Roman numerals, all that kind of stuff, I don't need that in my conducting score. I don't think there's ever a scenario where I'm going to need to say, okay, guys, it's a 5-7 chord. So, you know, if you're tuning a woodwind chord and you, 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 know, you know that the third has to be a little lower and the seventh has to be much lower and stuff like that, it's still not going to help for you. I, so I try to only put the stuff that's necessary, no more, no less. Yeah, I think that's a good approach. I mean, I, you know, I obviously don't do much prep or any preparation for score study, but I mean, I, I study my own parts and how they relate to the score. But 
I, I agree that like less is more oftentimes. Yeah. Just like the really yeah. vital, important information, you know, when you're trying to, like you said, that like triage when you're trying to like absorb all this information, if you have like a piece of paper screaming at you with all these markings, that's another thing that's just kind of get, going to get very you hard. Mad. And yeah. you know, beating a score is hard. Like there's clarinets written in the, in A and they're in a different key signature than everybody else. And then you've got bass clef and an alto clef and horns in F and you've got uh, piccolo that's an octave higher and you've got, and to read all that stuff in real time, you're going to make that harder for yourself by splattering on the page. So really, I, you know, you just try to keep it as clean as possible. Cool, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So people always talk about the future of orchestras. What do you think are the major things that need to change in order to continue to be relevant? I feel like this is a little bit of a taboo topic because people have been saying that orchestras are unsustainable since like the 1940s and clearly they're still here. But that's not to say that in certain innovations are not necessary. So what do you view like the future of orchestras? Like what do you think it looks like and what changes need to be made? Yeah, it's 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 the million dollar question it's what people always seem to be talking about every second of every day is what's what's wrong with orchestras and and what needs to change and i think that's fine and i i i think that people often are a little too alarmist on this in the sense that like you always let things could always be better and you know there there are things that we could change but what gets caught up in that sometime in the alarmist approach, I think, or just like, you know, orchestras, it's a disaster and they need to, um, what for me doesn't need to change is classical music and classical music as a, as an art form. I mean, I think when you start apologizing for classical music or pushing classical music to the back burner or something like that, you really get away from the core mission of, and the purpose of, I think it's an incredible, incredible, one of the, I mean, I think it's, you know, the most beautiful phenomenon that exists in society to have 70 trained musicians on a stage playing, working together in this nonverbal communication and playing incredible music without saying a word. But, and so I think, you know, first coming from the point of view of like classical music is is the reason why we're there. Um, and then thinking about like what changes can we make to to enhance that. And so what I what I really believe in is this is what my my podcast is about. It's it's what the book I'm working on is about is helping people towards techniques or approaches to listening that will make the listening process more enjoyable, more accessible. I also think, you know, any efforts we can make to make classical music more accessible is incredibly important. And I think, you know, I think in some ways when people talk about this, they they don't, we could always do more, but they also don't give credit to the like incredible work that is done by people like the education department at the ISO. I mean, I think the education department at the ISO does incredible things for so many kids. And so the, the most important thing to know is that like, that's really vital and that has to be a huge part of, I think an orchestra's mission, but hopefully also a state, a country's mission is to have arts and education and things like that. And then I think really importantly, I, I mean, this we're seeing this now, but classical music does have to uh, reckon with its tradition of being, you know, a white centric, male centric field dominated. The, the composers that we play are are almost exclusively white and male. Uh, performers have traditionally been almost exclusively white and male. Um, and I think the key is to what I what I at least try to talk about in my listening techniques is how to listen to anything. And so I think if orchestras can have a more equitable and kind of democratized view of what the art form can actually be and what we can present on stage and how we can present it, then you don't have to do that and compromise the integrity of classical music at all. I mean, you can do that in a way where you are really 
playing classical music that you're trained that these musicians are trained to play and that people can come to and listen to in relative silence and interpret and think and so i i never think we should get rid of that but you know uh doing so in a more equitable and democratic way is is something that we can con always continue to strive to do better and and there's an urgency now that i think is is excellent yeah absolutely and i think that you know, you're right. There are the alarmists who are like, oh, classical music's dead. It's like, well, I mean, there are more people in music school now than there have ever been. And, yeah. the, you know, kids age 20 to 30 are listening, are streaming more classical music now than ever before. Yeah. And when I listen to the TV and watch commercials, there's more classical music on commercials now than I think in the last 20 years. Yeah. That I've noticed. So, like, it's not dead, but it certainly needs to be, like you said, there are certain traditions that need to be rethought for sure. Yeah. And I think that for me, my biggest pet peeve is, is not a pet peeve, but my biggest issue right now is like the dress code. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Like, we, like, why are we wearing tails still? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I understand like it's okay. It's a fancy thing or it used to be a fancy thing, but I think that alone sort of presents this wall immediately. To people yeah. who don't feel like they're good enough for that. And yeah. that's not true because everyone is good enough for classical music. 100%. I think there are, I mean, um, I, I mean, tradition is a really double-edged sword with a lot of things. I think about it in the context of actually performing stuff and in the context of concert hall etiquette. And, you know, there are so many things that we do in classical music because it's been done that way for x number of years and uh and you have to look at not all traditions are bad you have to look at traditions and say which ones serve us still and which ones don't and i think the dress code i agree with you just doesn't and it, it promotes this this air of elitism that like you said it suggests that not everybody can do this there are other things you know i know that not everybody likes coming and the fact that everyone sits there silently in the concert hall but I am, I've never been a huge fan of kind of classical music, like these, oh, we'll come play classical music in the background at a bar while people drink. Well, I'm all for like a concert, but I think it's something that gets its worth from being listened to closely and attentively. And so I see the format of a concert hall as a very worthwhile one. It's like an art museum. You know, you're pretty silent in an art museum. You have a place to stand and view the painting for as long as you want to. And it's the same thing. You commit to coming and sitting in a place of relative silence so that you can sit there, you can consider, you can turn off your devices. And so I think you have to look at every tradition like that and say, okay, you have to be quiet when you come into the concert hall. Well, I mean, that, that kind of stinks, but but maybe that's actually worthwhile because that's what we're here to do is to make like really finely tuned music. You have to dress up. Who is that helping? You know, right. you you're destroying something when you clap at the end of Tchaikovsky violin concerto. Who is that helping? Like if you don't know that you're not supposed to clap at the end and you do like, do you really deserve to get all these dirty looks? Like, please let's, you know, <laughs> and so the traditions that are important, keep them, and dispose of the rest as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, those those that know me know that one of my most hated things or sayings is, well, we've always done it that way. It's like, well, you know, there's a lot of things that we've always done a certain way and it doesn't mean it's good. Exactly, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a closed-minded approach and, I mean, classical music suffers from, it's in the title, it's called classical music, um, but... It's still being written today and we have to change and we have to adapt and yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. For sure, man. So this is a very specific topic to this podcast being called The Candid Clarinetist. So I want to know from a conductor's standpoint, what are your biggest pet peeves in terms of clarinet playing? Okay, I've got one. I mean, this is this goes for all wind players, but it seems to be the, a primary infraction of clarinet players. Okay ownership over mistakes and what specifically i want to point to one thing which is that you know you make a mistake on your instrument it's fine there's no problem but clarinet players have this habit of they make a mistake and they they like kind of look around and they look at their instrument they put it up to their they go oh 
yeah, key was stuck. My bad. And they're like, they make this big charade of like, let me blow out the key. Yeah, that was the problem. It was an instrument, like a little hardware problem. And everyone's looking at, come on, you just, you messed up. It's okay. Don't put this big charade on for us. So that's my pet peeve with clarinetists. Blowing in the keys when clearly it was just a finger slip or something, you know, it's fine. Everybody makes mistakes. Just hand up. That was my bad. Sorry. Yeah, I love it. I mean, though, to be fair, that does happen. But I believe I, it happens. I, I don't believe that it happens as much as people people make it out. I am 100% guilty of making a mistake and then immediately looking down at my instrument as if something is wrong and nothing was wrong. There you <laughs> go. Just, so yeah. that's... I mean, listen, I understand the impulse, but clarinet players are are like the primary offenders in that way. Yeah, I love the, it. Whoops. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Hardware problem. No, <laughs> no worries, guys. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so you mentioned your podcast and part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on was because you are a fellow podcaster. And actually, I have to thank you because you certainly uh, helped me kickstart mine. I called you for a little bit of uh, consult consultation and uh, you helped me sort of, okay, this is important, this is not important, so thank you for that. But do you want to talk about your podcast a little bit? Yeah, so so my podcast is about, uh, as I maybe alluded to before, it's really about like listening to music and uh, it's geared towards people who haven't listened to that much music. Certainly people who do listen to a lot of music are welcome too, but the idea is that I think a lot of kind of music appreciation or art appreciation in general is taught through the lens of history, theory, form. Uh, you know, let me tell you about how cool this composer is so that you'll appreciate it. And I find in my own experience, you know, I've taken a decent amount of art history, but I don't think ever, anyone has ever taught me how to look at and interpret a painting. And uh so when i go to a museum what i end up doing it's it's a satisfying thing but i see something and i go oh that's a surat that's like a you know sea level not sea level it's a great painter but like oh that's that's not a particularly famous painter but i know who it is and i learned about that so that's really cool and then you come to another painting and you don't know what that is and you kind of okay that's that must not be important let me go on to the next one and I think we do the same thing in classical music. You talk about, oh, Beethoven, you know, he was deaf. He's this incredible composer. He, he, you should love his music because he wrote all this stuff. But you just, people don't have simple techniques for actually listening to music. And so I do the pre-concert talks for ISO. If I play a clip for someone and say, here's a really important part of the piece, like formally, this is the most important. This is the recapitulation, the moment when the sonata form comes back. I play 30 seconds. A lot of people are going to listen to that performance and just wait. They're going to be like, okay, when is the recapitulation coming? I got to catch this. A bunch of music goes by. They hear it. It's like, oh, I heard it. And then what do I do for the rest? And my goal is hopefully get people to listen to the whole thing, have techniques for listening to a whole piece, and have a under, like, try to kind of have a toolbox for listening to an entire program, regardless of what it is and get some meaning from that, get some enjoyment from that. Um, Cause I think that's one of the biggest barriers to entry is just people, you know, it's, it's, I've, in my book, I've been writing about how the connections between music and language. And I think one of the things is if you're a performer, um, you grow up playing classical music, you basically learn this as though it were a language, you're immersed in it and you, you learn all the, the words, so to speak, the sentences, the, the figures that come up over and over again. And if you haven't been exposed to that, I mean, it's like going and seeing a play, but they're performing the play in Sanskrit. You don't, you don't know how to understand what's being said to you. Um, and so it's very hard to get some grand meaning. I mean, you could see a Shakespeare play in Sanskrit and you could see, okay, that's by Shakespeare. That's important. And, you know, that you could learn two Sanskrit words and you would hear them and say, okay, I heard them. But to really get it, you have to to learn the language, so to speak, of music. And so that's what my podcast is about, is trying to give some techniques for doing that. Cool. And I don't think we said the name of it yet. So do you want to sort of... It's called Attention to Detail, um, the classical music guide, Attention to Detail. Unfortunately, 
I, I want to make this known that the uh, late and great Kobe Bryant, of course, has this show on ESPN called Detail that came out. My podcast was first. So I had the podcast attention to detail and then ESPN decided, okay, we're going to do this big series called Detail. And so like three days after I started my podcast and I was telling people about it, they're like, oh, oh, did you take the name from like the Kobe show? Um, but at least the name in conception, I had it for a while. It came, I'm sure ESPN had it in the works for like 20 years, but it's not mo- it's not just a knockoff of Kobe Bryant's detail ESPN show. Sure, yeah, you were the original for sure. I was the original. He saw my podcast and he was like, you know what? I love this so much. I, yeah, I can track my downloads and there's, you know, Kobe was downloading them. Yeah, for sure. Um, and where's the easiest place to find it? Do you have a website or? Uh, just- Attention to detailpod.com, but it's also on, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, it's on Stitcher, everything, all those good good places to find podcasts good stuff man and i'm glad that we were able to do this together and i'm hoping that at some point i can get on your podcast as well just so we can for do sure little, uh, we gotta have you on very soon i'm uh i'm bra- i'm i'm going through the ring cycle right now on my podcast but um that's just like a little pet project of mine i've only got two more episodes but then once we're done uh i gotta really get back to like less niche uh episodes so we'll we'll do we'll do one uh, here shortly Definitely. So I always got to do this with my guests just to just so we a little, you know, little peek behind the curtain. So Jacob Joyce, outside of the conducting role, outside of the music role, what do you like to do, man? Um, I'm really into biking at the moment. I uh, I've been trying to bike like and in fact, I mean, this this whole this shows you how cool I am. I've been watching a lot of the Tour de France lately. Um, I'm obsessed with the Tour de France. Uh, I know people think it's just like five hours of uh, dudes biking in one big group, uh, but I find it thrilling. Um, In that same vein, I play a lot of chess and I watch a lot of chess and watching a classical chess game is also like a five hour long endeavor where people are sitting there for the most part. Um, But I do that uh, and yeah, I love sports. Uh, obviously, at the moment, we don't have tons of sports going on, but you were telling me before we came on that the NFL is coming back, so I desperately have to get my fantasy football league set up. For sure. Uh-huh. And you and Big I Pacers share... Fan. Yeah, yeah. you and I share a mutual love of the NBA. We uh, yeah. we try to go to a couple games a year. We went, I think we went to one this year. We went to Mavs Pacers back in February. It was like right before everything kind of shut off, but... Was the, that uh, the game? Did we go to the game where there was a bat in the stadium? Oh, I don't, I don't remember. I don't think so. It might have been a different game. I went to a game where there was a bat in the stadium, and they learned, And there was an article on ESPN the next day saying the um, it was like the NIH or some some National Institute of Health couldn't rule out the possibility that like any everyone in the arena wasn't infected with rabies because they like hadn't been able to test the bat. Um, so yeah that was that was an experience oh man yeah and you you also have the unfortunate distinction of being a pistons fan your entire life. well i guess it's i guess it wasn't unfortunate your entire life but certainly recently it's been pretty unfortunate not only a pistons fan a all detroit sports uh fan which we i learned recently the detroit sports teams collectively set the record last year for the worst combined record of the four sports teams in history. So that's what we, I mean, the Tigers are the worst team in baseball. The Red Wings somehow are the worst team in hockey. The Pistons are perennially bad and the Lions are like the laughing stock of the NFL. So those are the teams that I get to root for. Um, I like living in Indianapolis where there are only two franchises and both of them seem to be decently well run, but it's rough. Yeah, it's a Pistons fan. Yeah, man. Well, it's always fun. I always enjoy talking sports with you and hanging out, going to games. It's always a good time. So before we leave, do you have any last words, shout-outs, pieces of advice, or words of wisdom? Ooh, uh, I'm unprepared for those. I'm not someone to go to for words of wisdom, so I'll pass on that. But uh, I can shout-out to my my parents who, if if they're still actually watching this uh, podcast, I would be very appreciative. But also have just been excellent supporters of my career. Um, and shout out to 
uh, really the shout out goes to the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra uh, musicians and and everyone on the staff who's who's been working to try to weather this storm. Um, I really hope we can just come back and and make some great music as soon as possible because because my favorite thing in the world is is being on stage with with the musicians of the ISO making some great music and it's been tough not to be able to do that. So I really um, I'm looking forward to when we can do that again. So I'm uh, but very very appreciative of of everything that that they do and and uh, yeah. For sure, man. That's it. Well, thank you so much for being on the cast. I uh, really thank appreciate you. you. And for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at The Candid Clarinetist, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash The Candid Clarinetist. Remember that we are now live streaming our podcast recordings, so please be sure to vi- visit us on Twitch. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to The Candid Clarinetist Podcast. <laughs>